welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for February 11th through 17th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. And then we'll have our feature interview with Dr. Eric Engstrom on the founder of the Modern System of Classification for Mental Disorders, Emil Kraepelin. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. For February 11th. In 1911, Joseph Peterson, instructor of psychology and the only PhD holder in the department at Brigham Young University, was among three psychologists warned by the Mormon General Church Council that they would be dispensed with if they did not discontinue their teaching of Darwinian theory. Peterson left at the end of the school year but went on to become the president of the American Psychological Association in 1934. For February 12th, in 1911, the first meeting of the New York Psychoanalytic Society was held. A.A. A. Brill was the founding president. This was the first association of psychoanalysts in the United States. For February 13th, in 1882, Jean-Martin Charcot presented the paper on the various nervous states determined by hypnotization in hysterics to the French Academy of Sciences in Paris. Charcot's paper was the first that the Academy consented to hear on any form of hypnotism. For February 14th, in 1955, Carl Jung appeared on the cover of Time magazine. For February 15th, in 1902, the first scientific papers were read at the British Psychological Society. James Sully presented The Evolution of Laughter, William McDougall presented Fechner's Paradoxical Experiment, and W.G. Smith presented Pathological Changes in Immediate Memory and Association. Also for February 15th in 1966, Julian Rotter's monograph, Generalized Expectancies for Internal versus External Control of Reinforcement, was published in Psychological Monographs. For February 16th, in 1988, psychologist Richard C. Atkinson became president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He was the first psychologist in 54 years to hold the office. James McKean Cattell, and Edward L. Thorndike were earlier presidents of the AAAS. For February 17th, in 1864, male criminal patients were separated from patients with mental illness at the Bethlehem Hospital in London by sending the criminal patients to the Broadmoor Asylum, constructed in 1863. Also for February 17th, in 1967, Arthur Jensen delivered an address entitled Social Class, Race, and Genetics, Implications for Education to the American Educational Research Association's annual meeting. The address helped to reignite the controversy over racial differences in intelligence.
February 15, 1856, was the date of Emil Kraepelin's birth. Kraepelin is best known for having been the psychiatrist who assembled a classification scheme for mental illnesses so influential that it forms the basis of many of the psychiatric categories used up to the present day. Among Kraepelin's innovations was the introduction of the terms paranoia and manic depression into psychiatric typology. Less well-known is that Kreplin was a student of Wilhelm Wundt's and conducted reaction time studies in the Leipzig laboratory on subjects who were under the influence of various drugs. On the line to talk to us about M. L. Kreplin is Dr. Eric Engström, research associate at the Institute for the History of Medicine at the University of Berlin in Germany. Dr. Engström is the editor of Kreplin's Papers, now up to Volume 6, and the author of Clinical Psychiatry in Imperial Germany, A History of Psychiatric Practice, published by Cornell University Press in 2003. Dr. Engström, Kreplin may not be uh, well known to many of our listeners. Could, could you start by telling us a bit about his background? Um, Kreplin was born in um, the north German city of Neustrelitz, which was in the duchy of Mecklenburg, and um, he um, was raised in a middle-class family. His father was um, an opera singer and a music teacher, and his father also traveled around northern Germany reciting um, the um, literature or the stories of a famous um, North German um, writer by the name of Fritz Reuter. Um, from all we can gather, um, Kreplin's relationship with his mother was a very close one, and that contrasts markedly with um, his relationship to his father. And one of the difficulties that Kreplin had growing up was that his family had um, problems keeping up appearances, if you will. The marriage broke up in Kreplin's childhood. A lot of the historical evidence suggests that um, there was an alcohol problem in the family. And that's important because Kreplin later becomes very involved in the temperance movement in Germany um, from about 1890s onward. Kreplin's father died when he was 26 years old, and Kreplin described the relationship as one of sort of fairly sterile bonds of piety. So it seems that his relationship with his father was lost all respect for his father by the time he had died. Um, father had left the family, essentially, and was traveling around the country. So the, one of the most um, important influences on Kraepelin, however, was his brother Carl, who was a biologist, and who later became the director of the Natural History Museum in Hamburg. And they had an intense interest in botany and zoology and spent a lot of their youth um, doing um, ex or essentially exploring the, the surroundings of Neustrelitz and um, collecting and cataloging plant specimens, and these are and and that sort of combines two of the constant themes which go th which run through all of um, Kraepelin's life: his interest in traveling and expeditions, and his interest in nature. They were, um, nature. Kraepelin was an avid Darwinist um, throughout his life, and that Darwinian thinking um, influenced um, his psychiatric in in very important ways. So he went to school in Neustrelitz, and then he began college. He took his brother, essentially, to Leipzig and began studying zoology there in 1874. At that point, Wundt hadn't arrived in, in Leipzig, but he was about to, and Kraepelin became familiar with um, Wundt's um, writings um, in these early years of, of study of zoology. Um, but Kraepelin also then um, shifted his study, or the focus of his study, um, and began and moved to Würzburg and began studying medicine there. And he became the assistant to the 
um, director of the psychiatric clinic in Würzburg and wrote his dissertation there on um, the influence of acute diseases or on um, mental disorders. But all of this time while he was studying in Würzburg, he was also reading Wundtian um, material and considering returning to Leipzig, which he then eventually did mm-hmm. um, for a brief time to study under Wundt in the mid-70s. Uh, as I understand it, he gets his MD in Leipzig in 1878, is that correct? That's right. And yeah. that's the year before Wundt had established uh, the famous psychological laboratory. Right. Um, but he returns in to Leipzig in 1882 to study the experimental psychology in Wundt's laboratory. What led him to psychology and, and what sorts of experiments did he conduct? Yeah. Well, it's not entirely clear exactly what sort of what sparked Craven's interest in the um, in experimental psychology. Craven um, writes in his memoirs that he'd always had an interest in in psychological um, themes, but we honestly don't know where sort of the was sort of the the first um, um, impulse for him to um, um, deal with uh, with psychological talks. But the interest appears to have been there from a very early age. Um, and he continues that, and that's sort of the, um, the drive which um, takes him then um, to one's um, work in Leipzig. When Craven returns to Leipzig um, in 1882, he'd, he'd been working in Würzburg and in Munich at the psychiatric wards, on psychiatric wards there, but he returns to, to Leipzig in 1882, but not necessarily to, to study on Wundt, or, or it was his, it was his intent to study under Wundt, but he got a job in the psychiatric asylum there, and was then very quickly fired from that job because he spent all his time in Wundt's laboratory rather than doing the, the rounds on the on the wards there. And he completed his second doctorate as a standard um, step on the ladder on the academic ladder in the United, in in Germany um, um, at at Leipzig then, and. While he was after he was fired, he spent um, most of his time working in in Wundt's laboratory and doing stimulus reaction time experiments. And those experiments were designed to study the effects of different stimulants, drugs, and um, coffee, tea, alcohol, and such things um, on mental processes. Mm-hmm. And his main tool or the main instrument that he used in those in those studies was the was Hipp's chronoscope. And the, the whole aim of those of those um, experimental studies was to sort of dissect the um, various processes in the brain. So he's doing simple reaction time experiments, um, experiments designed to test or to discriminate between different stimuli. The aim was to establish sort of norms of reaction times. Um, and later on, Craven sort of takes this takes this sort of narrower Wundtian um, methodology and expands it somewhat and tries to transport it into psychiatry proper. Mm-hmm. He's interested in sort of creating the symptoms of madness and then studying the, the, those, the symptoms that um, he's induced. Well, I've read somewhere that, that um, in fact, the reason he used alcohol and other drugs in his reaction time experiments mm-hmm. in Wundt's lab was because he thought they simulated to some degree um, the, the symptoms of psychopathology. Is, is that the exactly. case or is that sort of reading backwards from what he did later? That's absolutely the case, yeah. I mean, it's not clear. I mean, initially, it wasn't clear that Craven would go into psychiatry, okay? He would have liked to probably um, emulate Wundt's work and do um, experimental psychology. Um, but, you know, um, career um, pressures or the need sort of to 
um, embark upon a career. I mentioned before that he was fired from his job and he was in financial difficulties. He didn't have sort of a rich, uh, his family was not wealthy. And so um, he needed a job and there were lots of jobs to be had in, in psychiatry. So Craven sort of moves away from the narrower um, field of philosophy or experimental psychology into psychiatry and, and takes up the idea of applying Wundtian methods in, in psychiatric work. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole idea of the research is sort of twofold. One, to study sort of the pathology, but also to establish, in order to do that, to establish sort of norms of reaction times um, so you can compare the two between um, between the mentally ill on the one hand and then your normal um, proband on the other. Right. So after studying with Wundt, he leaves, leaves uh, Leipzig again in 1886, and after a short stint at uh, Dorpat, uh, he uh, spent the rest of his career, I guess, at Heidelberg and Munich. Right. Um, did he continue the drug experiments at, that he'd begun at, at Wundt's laboratory, and, and did he ever conduct these kinds of experiments on the mentally ill directly? He did continue the experiments, and experimental um, research is a constant throughout Kraepelin's life, um, but it fluctuates from time to time. In in the early period of his career in Dorpat and Heidelberg, um, um, he did a lot of um, um, research in this field. There was a hiatus around from about, from about 1900 to 1920 because he was consumed with um, clinical work in Heidelberg and then later in Munich, but he returns to it at the end of his career um, in the early 1920s. And it's one, it's often been, this aspect of Kraepelin's research has often been ignored, um, at least by the history of um, psychiatry. Um, but its continuing influence on his thought is, is documented in, in, I think, a very visible way in the research institute that he founds in 1917. It has a department in that research institute designated specifically for experimental research in psychology. Mm-hmm. Well, well, so he does continue to work, but he never doesn't doesn't um, um, use patients that much. His main his programs are usually himself, his colleagues, students, family members, and only occasionally does he use patients because they're so intractable for the experimental methodology that. Um, that he's using. Uh, Titchener in 1896, when he starts to get into the debate with Baldwin, says, oh no, you'd never be able to do these experiments on children or on the mentally ill, as Baldwin has suggested, because they they don't have the right kind of mind. They will never be able to take the right kind of of onlaga, of mental set, in order to uh, uh, be able to succeed. So that that is seen by Kraepelin as a problem. Yeah, and, and Titchener's essentially, maybe even echoing Wundt's sort of view of the of the of the matter, who also didn't believe it that it could be applied in psychiatry, um, but was willing to support Kraepelin's research nonetheless, and was willing to wait and see what would come of it all. And Kraepelin remained um, very closely, uh, very close friends until Wundt dies in I think after the First World War, shortly after the First World War. Mm-hmm. Now, Kraepelin's probably best known for having compiled one of the most influential early taxonomies of psychopathology, uh, introducing such terms as paranoia and manic depression into the psychiatric vocabulary. Could you tell us about the character of that work and and what relation it had to his experimental laboratory research? Kraepelin is um, most renowned, I guess you could say, for... Um, his classification of mental disorders in psychiatry. And the fundamental classification that he um, under was the distinction between manic depressive insanity on the one hand and what we today call schizophrenia. And that fundamental distinction, two large 
classes of, of mental disorders. One focused more on emotional disorders, the other on cognitive disorders. That's Kraepelin's main contribution to psychiatry. And he undertook that research, um, or he undertook that sort of, um, undertook basically clinical research in order to um, differentiate these two kinds of, of disorders. And he had an elaborate research program that he set up in the clinic itself um, that aimed at doing this. And it was focused, the focus of that research was on an exact description of the symptomology of the of the disorders, also an exact um, cataloging of the course of the disease. And that's what Kraepelin is really most renowned for, is integrating a view of the disease course into his classification system. And the relationship which that clinical research project has to his experimental psychological research um, is a fascinating one, and um, one that is the subject of um, some considerable debate um, amongst historians. And um, I think, I guess I'd describe the sort of interpretive approaches um, to talking about the relationship between experimental psychology and clinical research in psychiatry um, in terms of two different or competing schools. There's a what I would call a dissociative school, which is essentially no relationship between clinical research and laboratory research. They have nothing to do with one another. Mm -hmm. And the people who um, interpret Kraepelin in this light are the ones that want to see Kraepelin as the grand clinical nosologist, a great classifier of mental diseases based on empirical observation at the bedside, essentially. But there's another interpretation that looks more closely and tries to find a linkage between laboratory research and clinical research. And that I'd call sort of the associative school. And there's several different sort of views that uh, that have been propagated um, in this school of thought. Um, some see Kraepelin's experimental research as having a reductive effect on his classification of mental diseases. Um, the argument is that um, experimental psychology can't grasp biographic or sociocultural factors. The result of that, and as a result of Kraepelin's interest in experimental psychology, um, his clinical nosology had a biological bias to it. It couldn't account for biographical and sociocultural factors. Um, others who've looked for this linkage um, have tried to connect Wundt's um, ideas about aperception with dementia praecox. Um, dementia praecox being a cognitive disorder of aperceptive faculty, if you will. And they've sort of looked at a more theoretical level of the writings of Wundt and Kraepelin. And still others have looked more closely at the relationship of clinical practices and have seen the ex psychological experience um, experiments as designed to create a battery of psychological tests that Kraepelin could use to diagnose patients as soon as they enter his clinic. As soon as he could diagnose the patients, he could you know, determine a cure and so on and so forth. So the influence there would be more of a direct indirect one, arguing that Kraepelin recognized the limits of psychological experimentation and try to expand the perspective on, on mental disorders to encompass the whole course of the disease, the biography of the patient, and so forth. And that's what sort of start his, started his interest in clinical research, so a move away from experimental toward clinical research. Mm -hmm. Those are sort of the um, different interpretations that are given for the relationship between experimental psychology and uh, psychiatric nosology. And, and which one do you subscribe to? I subscribe to the latter because I'm a historian of 
of um, psychiatric institutions, essentially. And I see sort of the problems that arose in overcrowded um, clinics as producing the need for um, a rapid diagnosis in order to get more patients through the clinic more quickly. And Crapon thought that if he could get sort of an immediate picture of the patient's sort of mental functioning, okay, using these experimental techniques, he could evolve into psychological tests. He'd be able to diagnose patients more quickly and um, alleviate the problems of overcrowded clinics in Germany at that time. Mm -hmm. So being so strongly biological in his orientation, uh, Kraepelin stood mm -hmm. opposed to the psychoanalytic theory of Sigmund Freud, whose reputation grew over the course of the last 25 years of Kraepelin's life. Uh, did Kraepelin mm -hmm. ever address the Freudian position directly? Um, Kraepelin did address the Freudian position, um, but he rejected the core aspects of it. Okay, um, Freud's ideas of the subconscious, um, Kraepelin did not share, and Freud's emphasis on sexuality, especially in childhood, were um, topics that he um, disagreed fundamentally with. Um, in spite of those, um, it's surprising in some respects that there wasn't more... Um, Exchange between between Freud and Kraepelin, given their status um, in in or their influence in the 20th century. Um, but I think Kraepelin believed that Freud was a, wasn't scientific enough for Kraepelin. Coming from a Wundtian sort of school of thought, um, and sort of with inclinations towards sort of positivist thinking about diseases and so on and so forth. Um, he never really, he, he didn't see Freud as, as a serious scientist in many ways, and therefore it's not really worthy of a scientific refutation. So the relationship between Freud and Kraepelin was more one of, of, of Kraepelin ignoring Freud um, and just not taking his, his work um, seriously. And that reflects, I think, also the marginal status of psychoanalysis in the early 20th century. Freud was in private practice in Vienna and very marginal to sort of the, 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 the debates of psychiatric schoolmen, if you will, in the, in the, at the center of the psychiatric profession. All right. Well, thank you very much for this today. We have been speaking with Dr. Eric Engstrom about the life and career of Emil Kreplin. Um, Dr. Engstrom is a research associate at the Institute for the History of Medicine at the University of Berlin in Germany, and he is the editor of Kreplin's Papers and the author of the book Clinical Psychiatry in Imperial Germany, A History of Psychiatric Practice, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2003. If you're interested in reading more about Kraepelin, in addition to Dr. Engstrom's book, you can look at Kraepelin's memoirs, which have been translated and were published by Springer Verlag in 1987. Uh, the editors of that volume are Hans Hippius, Gerd Peters, and Detlef Plog. There is also an international Kraepelin Society. Um, you can find their website at www.kraepelin.org. That's K-R-A-E-P-E-L-I-N. And if you look at the Wikipedia entry for Kraepelin, you will find a link to an English bibliography of uh, Kraepelin's works, which is quite extensive. And now it's time for birthdays. First for February 11th, in 1890, Heinz Werner was born. Werner is best known for his work in developmental psychology and for his book, Comparative Psychology of Mental Development. 
for February 12th. In 1809, Charles Darwin was born. Darwin's theory of evolution by means of natural selection gave rise to comparative psychology, strongly influenced developmental psychology, and was the foundation stone of American functionalism. For February 14th. In 1855, Ernst Ewald was born. Ewald was a sensory physiologist whose pressure pattern theory of hearing proposed different patterns of basilar membrane response to combinations of intensity and frequency of sound. For February 15th, in 1934, Paul Ekman was born. Ekman's research has related emotional state to nonverbal behavior with a special emphasis on facial expression and nonverbal correlates of lying and deception. For February 16th, in 1822, Sir Francis Galton was born. Galton's main interests were in the heritability of mental traits, and in the course of those studies, he invented a number of statistics, as well as some psychometric apparatus. He also coined the term eugenics. Finally, for February 17th, in 1890, Sir Ronald Fisher was born. Fisher was an agricultural statistician who developed the analysis of variance and coined the terms null hypothesis, degrees of freedom, and randomized block design. The analysis of variance F ratio is named for the initial of Fisher's name. That's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P at YorkU, Y-O-R-K-U dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 